1: Wonderful to see everyone here this morning. So we have a full crowd, full church. And you have joined us this morning as we have just entered, starting last week, a study in the connection between faith and works, or works and faith. We started this last week in James chapter 2. And I explained last week that James is addressing the wrong view of faith, as opposed to the Apostle Paul, who in many chapters, in many of his epistles, uses similar terminology, but is addressing the wrong view of works. What Paul teaches is that works cannot save you. And you can see why he would say this coming from a legalistic Jewish background in which there were a lot of laws There are a lot of regulations, even in addition to or outside of what is in the Old Testament. As over the years, rabbis added more and more and more, which Jesus later condemned as putting burdens on the backs of God's people. But then we get to James, and James is not saying that works can't save you, though we know he believes that and agrees with that. He is saying that if you have made a profession of faith, if you claim to have faith in the gospel, in Christ, in whatever it may be, that is wonderful. But there is a test to see whether or not that faith is real, whether or not those are just words, those are just a feeling, those are just even an intellectual belief and acknowledgement, and that test is works. Again, this is after the fact, after a professed conversion. Do you have works? Do you have obedience? And it's as simple as this. If you are truly saved, then you would have a desire to obey the one who has saved you. We understand this. And so James is saying that not every kind of faith, everything that we refer to as faith, everything that we live according to as faith is saving faith. There is only one categorically true saving faith. And again, if you want to know if you have that right kind of faith and examine your life and see if you have the righteous works of obedience that are part of true faith which again, as we know throughout the Scriptures, is not just doing stuff for people to see, doing stuff for you to see or to feel good about yourself. It comes from a right heart motivation that ultimately desires to honor the Lord. There is a compelling drive within the believer who has saving faith that is the conviction and the wonders of the Holy Spirit to give you a desire to serve and to serve correctly to say, I want to honor God. And then, of course, we look to the Word because if we want to honor God, we can't just do whatever we want. We need to look to God's Word and to see, okay, God, I want to honor you. How do you want me to do that? And so it's not going out and murdering false teachers because he says he doesn't want us to be angry or hate or murder. And so we are guided by God's Word. In the end... James has argued in our uh, passage that we saw last week that making a profession of faith in Christ or a claim that you are saved has no spiritual benefit if there are no works to back up that claim. And again, it's not that you can make a false claim and then start doing seemingly good works and then you're saved because then we go back to what Paul was condemning, which is the wrong belief that you can be saved through your works. He's simply saying that if you have no works, you better go and check your heart because you probably aren't saved. He gave an example, in case this was confusing to any of his original readers, of seeing a brother or sister in great need of food and warmth. They're literally starving. They're out in the cold with not enough clothing to wear because of their poverty and you see that person and you say, be warmed and be filled, and then you walk away. You don't give them a blanket, you don't give them money, you don't give them clothes, you don't give them food. You have done nothing except speak seemingly nice words, but those words are not backed up by action. So, what James is saying, just as with the proclamation of faith, if you say, be warmed and be filled to someone who is cold and starving, but don't help to alleviate the lack, then your words are useless. Perhaps not in a position of being homeless or starving or cold in this manner. In this manner, I mean due to poverty, not just because of mis- misgaging the weather of the day. We have been in similar situations where people have said things that sound nice But in the end, they walk away or they log off or they end their email and you say, well, that really didn't do anything. In fact, it made me feel worse because I was hoping he would help. And you realize, as is the case here, not only in the person who says be warm and be filled, but even the person who has a false profession of faith, it would actually be better to say nothing at all. Because your words are just making things worse. Then he concludes his introductory remarks that we saw last week on this topic in verse 17 by bluntly stating, as he will state in many, many other times and in many different ways, that this kind of faith is dead, being devoid of works or being by itself. And you can imagine that just as there are today, back then when James first wrote this letter, There were many in the early church that would have had a bit of a problem with what James is saying here. In fact, we know that by being inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit in writing down the Scriptures, these people were not just shooting in the dark. They were writing about actual issues that the early church was dealing with so as to correct this young and new church so that we would have this body of work called the Bible, but also this doctrine and theology to guide us. But they would have a problem with what James is saying here, and the problem ultimately lies not in what James has taught, but in their recognition of a lack of fruit in their own lives. It's the people who would hear this and say, he's right, but I don't like that. I don't like that he's saying that I'm not a Christian because I'm not acting like what he thinks a Christian should be. They enjoy living essentially the same life they lived before their profession of faith, perhaps with a bit more whitewashing of their public persona, going to the local church rather than to the temple, but there is no genuine fruit. Yes, they pray a prayer. They walk down an aisle. They raise their hand. But since that moment, there has been nothing else. So they push back. They say, No, 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 James, this is real. Who are you to say something like that? Anticipating this pushback, James continues on the topic to address a hypothetical objector. Now, you need to keep in mind that he's writing a letter, not an email where he can go back and forth within minutes, if not seconds, a letter handwritten, on parchment, that would take days to deliver. He's not having a conversation. He doesn't have the luxury to wait for them to respond so he can respond back right away. So he needs to anticipate common objections that he has probably already heard in person or at least gotten wind of from other churches. And so he writes to this imaginary objector, And even writes what the objection would be. So let's take a look at James's address of this common objection spoken through the mouth of a hypothetical debater. And we find this in James chapter 2, our passages verses 18 through 20. James chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, still in our sermon series called Faith Works, this is part two. Let me read this for you. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So he's still addressing this wrong view of faith. And I want to give you three aspects of the wrong view of faith that we find in these three verses. Three aspects of the wrong view of faith, the first of which is the argumentative response. The argumentative response, which is this hypothetical debater, fighter. He's arguing. Verse 18 again, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. I will be the first to admit that the phrasing of this verse Can be very confusing, but what James is doing here was common in Hellenistic, or just fancy word for ancient Greek rhetoric. He introduces this common argument by voicing it through an imaginary individual, and you'll see this in a lot of ancient Greek writing, both secular and Christian. In the Greek. It is actually not clear how much of this should be in quotes. In other words, how much of it should be the quoting of this imaginary objector. I believe that the ESV and the NIV have it right in that the first phrase, you have faith and I have works, are in quotes and are the words of the imaginary opponent, and the rest is James's response. Regardless... No matter where you put the quotes or whether some people think it's James speaking the whole time, it's the objector speaking the whole time, it all makes the same point. The claim that the objector is making is that works and faith do not need to be connected. He's saying one person claims to have faith, another claims to have works, and that's fine. Why connect the two? So, the person with faith can show you that faith without his works whereas James continues his argument from the previous passage by saying that the proof of his faith is his works. You might want to sit there and say you have faith till you're blue in the face with no works and think you're proving it, but I'm going to prove it by, with my works. So when James challenges this person to show James his faith without works, in other words, without any real evidence, the existence of that faith is even there, This person can't. All he can do is keep repeating what he's already said. I have faith. Prove it. I have faith. Show me. I have faith. I'll write it down. I have faith. But there's no works. And so James says, okay, settle down. Let me make it simple for you. I will show you my faith by my works. Maybe it'll help by, with this illustration because I know it can be confusing. Hopefully this helps. It's like a couple people standing around at the local community park at the basketball courts. One is bragging about his basketball skills while the other person has made mention that he has skills, but he's actually running up and down the court making every shot and actually dunking the ball. James is saying, you can stand there all day saying you have basketball skills. But this guy's actually showing us by making the shots and dunking the ball. In the same way, someone can stand there all day saying he has faith, but the real Christians are going to be working out their salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. They're going to be showing it. They're going to be actually evidencing their skills, if you will. Now, as an outside observer at that basketball court, who are you going to think actually has the skills? As an outside observer of people living their lives, who are you going to think has true faith? The person who's watching the game, it doesn't matter what he says if he doesn't show us his skills to back up his claim. All he's doing there, I could do that, I could do that, I'm good at that. A lot of you are going to be doing that this afternoon. Right? Watching the game and saying, yeah, I could. oh, come on. Why is he? Come on, I could have done that. Right? Show me. Prove it. Suit up. But that's actually where the sports or the basketball analogy falls short. The guy who is just standing there and talking and not playing may actually have basketball skills. But at that very moment, he has a hurt leg. Or maybe he was walking to the park on his way to work and he's wearing a suit. Maybe he's on his way to a meeting and he doesn't want to get sweaty. So all he has is his words, but really he does have skills. He just can't show it right there. And that's where the analogy again falls short because the Christian is compelled to serve. There is no place, there is no physical state where the Christian cannot serve where there is an excuse to say, well, I want to serve, but I can't. Because opportunities and varieties of service are so numerous that no amount of disability, inconvenience, or immaturity in your faith will keep you from righteous works. Because you have to understand that service begins with the one another's. Praying in the quiet of your own hospital bed is service. A word of encouragement through a text or an email is service. So from a prayer or a word of encouragement to running a megachurch and everything in between, Christians serve because we want to. And what I am saying is that nobody with true saving faith is going to profess faith and not have the related obedience or works. You just want to do it. Talk to any new believer. What do I do? I don't get what you guys do on Sunday yet, but can I do that? Can I help with that? What can I do? They just want to serve. That is the nature of a Christian. Now, going back to James' argument, he continues by giving us an alarming reality regarding faith in God. And remember this, even in the faith that does not save and thus does not result in works, There is a profession, there is an acknowledgement, there is a belief in the truths of Scripture regarding the gospel. But knowing and even believing these things are true does not save. And we see this with abundant clarity in our second aspect of the wrong view of faith the alarming reality. The alarming reality. Look at verse 19, and you'll see why I call it this. Again, he's speaking to the person who claims to have faith, but does not have works. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Let's start with answering the question, what are demons? Demons are fallen angels. They follow Satan. Yes, demons and Satan are real. These are not the the things of Hollywood, grossly twisted by Hollywood, yes. But fallen angels are demons. They follow Satan, their leader. They are enemies of God who are servants of the enemy of God, the devil himself. Satan, Beelzebub, the liar, he has many names in Scripture. Now, considering who and what they are, they very much believe in Jesus Christ. And again, demons are demons. They are supernatural. They are spiritual beings. They, are one, they were once in heaven with God. They are fallen angels, okay? So we're not talking about how maybe we use the word demon, like someone who's just evil, some mass murder in prison. Oh, that guy's a demon. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the spiritual realm. And so they, of course, believe in Jesus Christ. They have interacted with God, very God, and human flesh when Jesus walked on earth. Not all of them, but we have record of many of them. They witnessed the crucifixion and the resurrection. They understand why God did all of this. They recognize our eternal salvation through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They believe all of that, but they're still demons. And enemies of God. Sworn enemies of God. And this truth that James states here is stated elsewhere. You don't need to turn there, but in Mark chapter 1 and verse 24, some demons say to Jesus, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Double. Calls him the Holy One of God, recognizes who Jesus Christ is which pretty much all of mankind didn't at that point, and even says, have you come here to destroy us? What do the demons do when the humans try to destroy them? They laugh and call their friends. Matthew eight twenty nine. we have record of demons saying to him, again, what business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What time is that? Their ultimate judgment. They even know that there is a day when Jesus Christ is going to judge them and throw them eternally into the lake of fire. And to our point this morning, demons even have a proper eschatology, even though their defeat is within that eschatology. Demons are great theologians, they are very orthodox in their views. They don't need to try to imagine the glory of God as we do, they have been in its presence. They don't have to study books as we do. They've experienced it. They believe. But they're still demons, enemies of God. Now, to be clear, when James says they believe, he is using the basic meaning of the word. They have a belief in God and the realities of Scripture. As believers in the church, sometimes we use the word believe or belief as synonymous with salvation. But this is just belief in the head. There's an intellectual acknowledgement of the facts of God among the demons because they have witnessed and experienced those facts of God. Now, the specific fact or doctrine that James says his imaginary objector believes along with the demons is that God is one. And if you wonder why, why would he bring this up? Why not Jesus died for your sins or whatever it may be? Why God is one? If you have that question, I really, uh, it's very important that you listen to what I'm about to say. Because that phrase, God is one, is one of the most crucial statements in all of Scripture. It is the wonderful, great, blessed, beautiful Shema from Deuteronomy 6. It is the basis of the Jewish faith, it is the basis of all Christianity. If you're ever in a Bible quiz, they might ask you what is important about Deuteronomy 6. And if you are here this morning, from now on, you better get it right. It is the Shema. Turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 6, towards the front of your Bibles, the beginning of your Bibles. And again, because it is one of the most important chapters and passages in all of Scripture, I want you to turn there with me, Deuteronomy 6. We call it the Shema because it's Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, as in hear with your ears, hear in Hebrew, and you'll see very quickly why this passage is called this. The Shema is technically found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. We're going to look at the first verse. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says, "'Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one.'" So important is this in Judaism that it is still recited today by devout Jews twice a day. It emphasizes the uniqueness of God. In other, w- in other words, it emphasizes what we call monotheism. There's only one God in the universe. This is why it's also significant in the Christian faith. Now, in the early church, it would distinguish the Christians from pagans because you understand that the majority of people were religious. There was some sort of religion. Many of them, especially where James was and his readers were and where Jesus walked the earth, there was polytheism. You remember this from grade school or high school, right? Zeus and Aphrodite and all those. There were temples everywhere, especially in, in the big cities. And so everyone was pretty much religious. And here comes God who is distinguished from these idols, from these pagan gods, to say that there is only one God. He is the one. He is the great I Am. Today it would distinguish us from false religions, but also any form of non-religious idolatry, money, self, politicians, whatever it is. And we understand that the basis of all of God's character as it flows out in the Ten Commandments starts with what? Essentially this. There is one God, and He is it. And so we see why this is the particular aspect of God that James brings up. He says that the one who has faith without works believes this and does well. Now this is clearly meant to be sarcastic because he goes on to compare them to demons. He says the demons believe this too. The demons believe this most crucial of self declaratory statements by God of Himself, and the demons believe this. Of course they believe this. In fact, that's probably why they try so hard to create and emphasize polytheism and idolatry. But again, with this individual, faith without works, who believes God is one, it is all pointless. If all you have is a profession even if that profession is based on an intellectual commitment to a belief system, to a creed, to a theological text, there is no real trust, there is no real commitment, and that's why there's no real works. James's point is that such intellectual knowledge is necessary, but it is not enough, at least not for salvation. the proof of this is the fact that the demons have the same intellectual knowledge. To put it another way, if you're still in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, is worthless without verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It's pretty obvious what James is doing here. The contrast between someone who says he is a Christian and a demon couldn't be greater. The shock value alone is worth its weight in gold to make his point. Demons are the perfect illustration of the emptiness of belief without trust, profession without works. And the most alarming thing, as I call this the alarming reality, the most alarming thing is not that the demons believe, but that they shudder in response. Something an unbeliever simply would not do. To shudder, back in James 2, means to bristle. It means to tremble. The Greek word was often used to speak of the trembling that occurs with great fear or other physical indications that someone is terrified. Goosebumps, hair standing on end, things that are involuntary such as the shaking of the body when you are scared. I would imagine that most of us have not been so scared that we shake involuntarily. But you've experienced this perhaps when you've had a high fever. You're just shaking in bed and you can't stop it. He says the demons do this because they understand who God is. Many years ago, my wife and I were driving from Greece back to where we lived in Albania. Uh, We were caravanning with some other teammates of ours, and we made the wrong turn. Apparently, there was a new road that could get us back very quickly. We followed the signs that indicated us to the old way. And so we ended up, we were in Albania. We ended up on this mountainside in this very pitch black place. And, And later, when I explained to people in our church uh, who, where we had gone in, uh, where in an accident, they're like, "Oh, I know that road. People are tailgating you. There's no lights. It's very dangerous. It's very well known in Albania, because it's so dark there." And so it's very curvy, and people clearly were making deliveries back and forth between the two countries, and so they were speeding, they're tailgating. My buddy, who we didn't have kids at the time, he had a kid, so I think they were eager to get home. It was getting late, and so we lost them. And it was raining. Was it raining? It wasn't even raining. So my, I'm looking. <laughs> my wife's not here today. I'm just looking. No, she's standing right there. It wasn't raining, but it was pitch black. People were familiar with the road, and my friend had gone ahead of us, and so I was trying to catch up uh, because he had... Google Maps or Apple Maps or something like that. It's like where we were is like a dollar a mile, so we didn't have it, so we just wanted to follow him. But I lost him. And I made the big mistake, and I don't think I knew this was a mistake. I just learned at that time, I sped up right when I made a huge turn. I started spinning out, and we stopped spinning, and it was like out of a movie. When we stopped spinning, our headlights shown on the railing, which, praise God, there's, a, there's no railing in most of that route. And it was like slow motion as I slammed on the brakes and we just kept going towards the rail, going towards the rail. We slammed into it and we stopped. And it's total digression, but I got to share this with you. One of the big reasons that people go to Greece from Albania, especially the Americans, the missionaries, is because uh, for two reasons. It's the closest McDonald's. So if they have kids that have spent time in America, uh, they like to go there for a treat. I mean, it's actually a, that's their vocation for a lot of these missionaries. They don't have a lot of money. And also because stuff is so expensive in Albania, because you have an import tax and then the VAT tax and all this stuff, uh, they go there to go to, there. It's the closest Ikea, and so they load up on furniture. So we had bought some furniture, and some of it, uh, you've been to Ikea, but for some reason some of it was these uh, wooden, basically pieces of wood, but they weren't in a box, they were just loose, and so we had put them in the back of our SUV. And last minute, some of you are going to be very confused, those of you who know me well are going to be like, that makes sense, Last minute, across from the McDonald's, we weren't that interested, was a big, kind of like a Home Depot, but a Greek version. So we're just walking around, and I see this prefabricated koi pond, okay? It's just this piece of plastic that's shaped like a pond that you would dig in your yard and put in, and I said, I want that. I've always wanted a koi pond. I'm stuck here in the third world country. I'm getting my koi pond. Now we lived in an apartment but I knew that somehow I could rig this so that and I did. They're like put like I put wood all around it so it's holding it up on anyways. So there was nowhere to put this koi pond except right across the back of us and when we hit that railing at that speed those IKEA pieces of wood would have gone straight through our skulls if it weren't for that last minute purchase of the koi pond blocking us. Secondly, we had friends who we had caught up to, and they heard the screeching, so they stopped and they watched us. And the missionary wife said, there must have been an angel holding up that rail at the speed you were going. And then she said, did you guys ever look down? And I said, no, because I just thought we were like 15 feet up. And she goes, good thing you didn't. And she would not tell us how high we were. So we got, you know, my fender was pushed into the tire. So we tried to pull it out as best we could. And we still had like three hours to go. I was fine. I was like, everyone okay? We're going? Okay, let's go. No point in standing here. There's no AAA, no nothing. We just need to go. I can't believe how long this has gone. But so I get back in my car (laughs) and everything was fine. We're talking, you okay? Yeah, okay, let's go. And I got back in my car. And I couldn't stop shaking. I wasn't scared by then. Uh, I had calmed down. But I couldn't stop shaking because of what my body and my brain and my emotion had just gone through. This is what James is talking about. The demons do simply when they think about the truth of whom they are fighting, that God is one. It expresses a high degree of awe and terror because the demons truly know who God is. They have this reaction. They don't just believe the facts. They shudder at them. And so James is saying, I know you're not going to do this, the one who doesn't have true faith, but the demons do. The demons respond in a way that goes further than someone who has a false profession of faith. And it shows that this kind of faith can know about God without responding in true worship. This is a great reminder for us. I ended the sermon last week in talking about we need to take these truths and be careful how we address unbelievers, making sure that we don't tell them that they can be saved by their works. I would add to that, we must not in our evangelism start debating moral or political issues as if, if they change their views on those that would save them. It's not disagreeing with James, it's disagreeing with Paul and the rest of Scripture. But also, we talked about how we need to be careful if there is someone who professes faith in your life or even in your church to not just assume they're a believer if there is no obedience there. Not because you just never really see them, don't know them, but you've been around them, you see them, and there is no worship, there is no change. But I believe this is, for us, this is very convicting in our own lives as well, not just in how we interact with others. Because we don't just embrace, of course, true faith as a church. We embrace sound doctrine. Many people come to churches like ours because they have realized that they've been going to a church that doesn't teach the scriptures, or they were teaching something or have been teaching something that was not accurate. Or maybe the church has changed where it was a solid church and then they started letting things creep in. There's only so much they can take and so they leave and in in the blessings that it can be of the internet they go to certain websites call certain other churches and they find like-minded churches for lack of a better word let's say conservative churches. But you understand we don't mean conservative in kind of the traditional American sense, right? We make everyone has to wear a suit to church and head coverings and whatever else it is. Conservative in that we believe every word of the scripture is true and applicable to modern society regardless of what year it is when we say modern. So we're a conservative church. And so people come. Maybe they found a solid preacher online and they just kind of follow the internet trail to a local church. They came across certain books or maybe they just read the Bible for themselves and said, I need to find a church that teaches this. And so they run away from the weak or the liberal church and they come to ours, praise God for that. That's why we're here. That's why... We're here in the peninsula and not in the South Bay where there's many churches like ours or in the city where there's many other churches like ours. People are saying there are none here in the peninsula. And so that's why we planted here. But what happens far too often is when that sound doctrine that they now embrace, that they now profess, move from the pulpit to their person through accountability, they're gone. They want sound preaching. In fact, they love it. They just don't like being held accountable to that preaching. What has happened is they have embraced the conservative church as a reaction to the liberal church rather than as a response to the holy God. And this often results in issues such as pride. In fact, often that's why they leave their old church in the first place, because all of a sudden they think they're better than them. It often results in legalism, hypocrisy, expecting everyone to behave according to the scriptures except for themselves, judging, arrogance and condescension towards those who are not like-minded, or Worst of all, what James is talking about here, a false profession of faith. And though James is speaking of unbelievers, you can see how the same sort of behavior can be emulated by believers. Why are you here? Why do you like my preaching? Because it makes your old pastor look dumb? Or because you love God? Why do you want to do these things? Why do you want to embrace this doctrine? Because it feels good to have more ammo, to judge other people and rebuke more people, or because you love God? All of this is what James is talking about. It's not check the boxes, you made a profession, now do this, this, and this. It's because if you have a true profession, you will love God and that will naturally explode in obedience and works. Ultimately, when it comes to the worship of our Savior, it is never enough to embrace anything without living it out. Not doctrine, not theology, not sound preaching, not church community, not faith. And speaking of faith... Back in James 2, we see James going even further and driving home the point. He moves from this shocking comparison to demons to getting a little personal. Verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And from this, we get our third aspect of the wrong view of faith, the accurate rebuke. The accurate rebuke. Accurate in reference to... To calling him a fool. We've seen the argumentative response, the alarming reality, the accurate rebuke. The harshness of this name-calling seems perhaps even more harsh when you understand that the word foolish literally means empty. So when you call someone a fool, you're calling them empty-headed. It can imply stubbornness and hard-hearted ignorance, uh, which is more the issue that James is dealing with here. Even knowing that, I think we would all agree that this is an accurate description given the circumstances and the seriousness of the issue at hand. You may not be saved. And in light of this, one would, try, would truly be foolish, rather, to dig their heels in. After everything that James has said, to dig their heels in and hold to their view and say, no, nah, I don't need works, I have faith. We also know that people are called fools in the Scriptures when they actively agree with or pursue moral error or sin. And what we see here is James addressing someone who refuses to see the error of his views that flat-out deny the Word of God and the very Gospel. And perhaps the most well-known use, well-known use of the word fool is in Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And for James, the fool says in his heart, There is no need to obey God. And so he asks this fool if he is willing to recognize now that faith without works is useless. The question he asks here in verse 20 conveys the idea of, do you get it now? Do you still need more convincing? And what he expects this person to be convinced of by now is again that faith without works is useless. Literally inactive. Unprofitable not producing salvation. This is another angle to what he said in verse 17 about faith without works being dead. Here in verse 20, in the Greek, there's actually a bit of a play on words. Literally, it says, faith without works does not work. This question also serves as a segue into more teaching on the topic, which we'll see next week, specifically a throwback to Abraham and his faith as well as the faith of Rahab. And again, these are Jewish people who have converted to Christianity, so this would really hit home with them. Two heroes in their, their, their former religion and their culture were Abraham and Rahab. It's important to not lose sight of the fact that salvation is by grace alone. And I know as we emphasize the importance of works, maybe we can forget that for a minute. We know that James definitely knows that. In no way is he trying to shame his readers into working for their salvation. He's just trying to convince them that if they don't have works, they're not truly saved, and they need to do something about that. And we must keep in mind, and this is very important, that what James is doing is confronting and correcting those who have not received that grace of God but are claiming that they have or have not sought out or desire that grace of God because they are content claiming a faith that is, in fact, dead. We can see how this is so appealing to the world because a faith without works, technically speaking, not to confuse you, has works. Deeds of the flesh. I mean, why not have the best of both worlds, right? Right? To say I have faith in Christ, hang out with these great group of people every Sunday morning, but I still get to go out and party with my old friends. Yeah, It's not like it's a new guy every weekend, but if I wanted to, you know, I could be intimate with whoever I want. And I have a God who loves me. And as believers, we understand that the only reason that that would be appealing is because they haven't been to our side of the equation. They haven't experienced the joy of obedience. They haven't experienced God's grace. Kind of silly, but you've heard me say it before. It's kind of like going to Disneyland. If anyone were to describe to you what Disneyland is like, especially someone who had a rough time there, you'd be like, that sounds like the unhappiest place on earth. So the ride was an hour, right? You waited an hour in line for a ride that lasted an hour. No, it was about 64 seconds. You waited an hour in Southern California heat with sticky popcorn in your hands, cotton candy in your hair. Really? It, It sounds horrible, but then when you're there, you're like, where's the season pass? Where's the season pass? Where do I buy that, right? Fall short, of course. And that's the frustration we often feel in evangelism, right? Like, you don't get it. No, you Christians, you got to do this and this. You don't get it. I want to do that. It's a joy to do that. But they have inexperienced experienced grace, and so they're like, I don't need works. I don't want works. Make my profession to live the way I want, but we have to be faithful to tell them that faith is dead. Why do you want to profess that? Well, I don't want to go to hell. Then I need to tell you something, and you're not going to like it but there is good news. The same good news they think they already have embraced. So we are not to take this truth and present it to others in a way that encourages an attempt to earn God's favor with their works, but to bring them into an awareness of their need for repentance, to shake them out of hiding behind a profession that is, in reality, a damnation. And we can learn from how blunt James is, Don't call anyone a fool. He's writing a letter. We need to be gracious, but we need to be blunt. We need to be firm. People say, well, you need to draw a line in the sand and stand there. I can't draw a line in the sand. It's so hard. You don't understand. Well, I got great news for you because you don't need to draw a line in the sand because God did it for you. Just stand there. And speak his truth. You don't shy away from literally reading a memo from the boss that your coworkers won't like. It's not me. I am just reading verbatim. So why be be afraid to share the gospel when you're just reading verbatim? Maybe not always. You're summarizing, you're sharing your testimony but it's not you it's not your words they're his words we need to be bold about the gospel we need to stand up for Christ and not shy away and what we most need to learn from James and Paul and anyone else in the scriptures that James is bold and James is blunt because of his love for God and for others. It is is his humility that drives him to speak this way. It is his love that compels him to speak boldly, even knowing that the response may be hatred and anger and persecution. This kind of boldness comes from humility. And when you have such humility then it will do away with being rude. You will be firm, but you will be loving. You will be like what the melody of our hymn this morning seemed to indicate, a soberness and a brokenness and a humility. What wondrous love is this? This is why we approach the throne of God before we ever approach other people. And it is in that when we understand what we have by God's grace and we truly understand the damnation that professing believers who will sing along with us what wondrous love is this and cry and mean it but have no works and thus indicating that they have a false faith, We need to tell them with love and with humility, with graciousness and kindness, but with boldness and being blunt with the Scriptures. We need to tell them, I don't think your faith is real. Search your heart. Search the Scriptures. Three aspects of the wrong view of faith argumentative response, alarming reality, the accurate rebuke. This, actually yesterday I came across yet another clip online of a very well-known magician who, second to his uh, celebrity as a magician, is probably most well-known for being a very vocal atheist. He's uh, of the duo Penn & Teller, Penn Jillette. I have actually uh, seen his show live and he will take jabs at Christians uh, throughout his show. And he has made many, many videos explaining partly why he is an atheist and why he mocks Christians. And it's very convicting. He says the Christians claim that if I don't believe what they believe, that I will go to hell forever, for eternity. And yet, I have met many Christians, and they don't tell me the gospel. How can I believe that this is true if the Christians don't even seem to believe it? Because let me tell you, he would say, if someone is going to burn forever, I would be pretty bold about telling everyone I knew. And praise God, he also, several years ago, and this became very popular among, in Christian circles, As I understand, a lot of performers of his caliber do out when people are leaving the theater, they will stand outside and shake hands and greet people, take pictures, sign autographs. And he was doing that after a show, and he noticed that there was just one guy standing there, very patiently, wasn't being rude as other people were, just waiting patiently for a long time until everyone was gone, and then came up to him. He so, said, Mr. Gillette, I really enjoyed your show. It was great. You were funny. I said, but I want to share with you the good news of Jesus Christ. And shared the gospel with him. And this man then went on YouTube or whatever again, the magician, and was just blown away. I said, I still don't believe, but I have, he said, I have great respect for that man. Because finally someone actually indicated they b- believe what they claimed to believe by being so patient, so gracious, so complimentary, but then telling me that I'm going to hell and how to avoid it. And he loved that. We need to stop being afraid. And if you have a fear of man in evangelism with unbelievers you're going to be really scared to tell someone who thinks they're a believer that they might not be. I Also say this. If you're judgy and you're arrogant and you're angry and you want to tell them they're not a believer, you've you've thought this for many months, but you finally want to tell them because they did something that made you mad and offended you, then you better be scared, but not of that person. You see, we need to stop being motivated to evangelize out of anger, out of a desire to be condescending, out of pride. If you are not approaching a brother who claims that faith but no works, with tears in your eyes because of your love for God and for that individual, there is something amiss because we understand in approaching this conversation what we have in God's grace, who we are. And none of us, well, in our sin we might, but ultimately wouldn't be like, look at my works. None of us hold, look at my Christian resume. You think you're, you're folding chairs? Do you know how many decades I've been folding chairs at churches? I mean, none of us would do that, right? Because we understand that even the works is by God's grace. And so we're a community. We are a family. But the reality is there are black sheep in our family that don't know it, and we need to tell them. And we need to love them. We need to care for them. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have works, not by our own efforts, but because of a partnership with you who is working in our lives for your good pleasure. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. And in that grace and kindness, way, may we approach others in like manner, sharing them the truths, the reality of the gospel, whether they are someone who don't know you, whether they are a celebrity magician or a co-worker, whether it's our boss or our professor or our own children, whether it's someone in our church or in our Christian family that make a profession of faith but don't show any evidence of it. May we graciously and humbly speak to them, And may you do your work of regeneration because it's not anything we can do. So may we not approach those conversations as if it were, but may we rely on you, call people to repentance, call people to enter into the joy of the fold of the family of God. And in the midst of all of that, may you increase our worship not in arrogance, but in humility as we recognize what you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.